take them home with me. They make me feel young. <laughs> my name's Cricket, and I'm an alcoholic. Hi. Hi. My sobriety date is October the 19th of 1969. I sobered up when I was 28, and I'm 51, so that tells you I've got a little over 23 years, and I'm real grateful. And I got that by not taking the first drink of alcohol. That's how I got that continuous sobriety. It's not because I'm a good person. It's not because I work a better program. It's not because I do service work or go to more meetings. It's because I haven't taken a drink of alcohol. I've done everything in AA that I ever did drinking and learned a few new character defects. <laughs> Thought I was through learning them until I met Cliff. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you the occupation he offered me. <laughs> It's what men usually do for women on the street. He just wanted me to reverse the roles. Melanie was in agreement, so I may do that this evening. I've had a neat time. This has been a neat experience coming to, o to Omaha. You fly into an airport. You get in a car with Steve and Brenda, and you drive and drive and drive. <laughs> I left Fort Worth this morning, and everyone's in T-shirts, and I get into Omaha, and I'm telling you all, it's cold. But it's been neat. It's been a good experience. Life is a good experience for me today because I'm able to feel again. And I couldn't do that before I got sober. I couldn't do that for my first probably 10 years of sobriety. I didn't know how. I hear a lot nowadays. They, they discuss a lot about what causes alcoholism. And I don't know. I don't know if I've got bad genes. <laughs> I always thought Wranglers was a good brand, but... <laughs> You know, they, they get into this thing about why we are what we are. And I think if you find out a specific reason for something like that, then you're going to look for a specific cure. And you're going to go back in the closet because the pill they give you to pop is not going to work. It's not going to work. That's why those people that designed this program and gave it to us had much more wisdom than any society of learned people that we're ever going to meet in our life, I think. They say that we're born alcoholic, and I, it amazes me when new mothers in sobriety will look at their children and say, yep, he's predisposed. <laughs> the baby's burped, you know. <laughs> there, there's a difference between a milk burp and an alcoholic belch. <laughs> but they say he's predisposed, and I, I just kind of get shaky because I don't know that that's, necessarily true. I'm the only alcoholic in my family. I don't know if it's hereditary. I don't know about those kind of things, and I'm not interested because I know about recovery from the disease of alcoholism, and that's what I'm interested in, and I'm I'm a beginner in this deal. You know, I, I looked at the lady that got the two weeks, and I remember my second week, and I remember some of the feelings I had inside, and I don't ever want to forget that because I know what that two weeks leads to. Before I ever took my first drink of alcohol, I believed there was something wrong with cricket. And it wasn't in my head. It was something wrong with the heart of cricket. I was born into a family that was special. My mother's full-blooded Irish, full-blooded black Irish. And full-grown, she stands this high. But I tell you what, you don't want to go up against this woman. <laughs> She's a very superstitious woman, and she believes that one child in each family is born evil. And you determine that child by their weight at birth, and whoever weighs the least is evil, and they're possessed. My natural father's full-blooded French. I never met him, but I know two things about this man. He sired 17 children. That adds up to being a very potent man to me, so I know that about him. And he, none of us knew him, so I know that he didn't know how to establish roots. That's what I know about my real father. Out of all those children at birth, I weighed two and a half pounds. So I was born evil. I was born possessed. And this gave the family a fear of me. We made our living following crops all over the United States. And I was, as I, we were driving from Omaha to Kearney, and I looked out there at the things that only God can do. You know, I saw a lot of things that man created. But I looked at things only God can do all the way. I mean, there, there were cattle, there were sheep, 
There were horses, there were trees, there were flowers, paintings that only our God can give us. And we were raised walking through that kind of world. The only thing I did not like about crop following, because it was a neat way of life, it really truly was. There's something special about touching the dirt and really knowing what that dirt feels like, not on the top, but going down a little bit. Every time the fruit or vegetable season changed, we had to change schools. Every time. And every time I started a new school, to me, it seemed as if my hair was the wrong color. I was too fat. I was too thin. Because we did not have indoor electricity or plumbing, I had real ugly skin. And my teeth were rotting out of my head. I thought if something on the outside of Cricket could change, if I didn't have this, if I had pretty hair, if I had pretty eyes, if I was taller, if I was shorter, if I were heavier, if I were thinner, if any of these things could change, then these other little girls could come to my home. These other little girls could play with me because they weren't allowed to play with us. People were afraid of us. They thought that crop followers stole children. You know, we didn't do that. We stole your money. <laughs> we weren't interested in kids. We tried to drop them off on a regular basis. <coughs> but they didn't know that. They thought that a crop follower and a gypsy had the same cultural style, which is not true. It's two different cultures, two different lifestyles. Thank you, Nancy. And it's a beautiful way of life. I have a total of four years of education. Hi, pretty lady. <laughs> Matthew's back. <laughs> it, you know, it's growing up that way and feeling the fear that I imposed on myself, feeling the fear that my family imposed on me. One of the most beautiful things about being a mother is that when it's dark outside, my daughter has always came inside. My daughter comes in because her home is safe. My daughter comes in because if it's cold outside, it's warm inside. My daughter comes in because if it's hot outside, it's cool inside. My daughter comes in because physically she will be fed. She comes in because emotionally she will be fed. She comes in because spiritually she will be fed. She knows what she's coming into. In our family, when it got dark outside, all of us children went outside. We didn't know what was out there. We weren't afraid of what was outside. We knew what was inside of our home, and it was scary. And see, even at a young age, I didn't like God. Not because of anything God had done, but because I'm one of those people who believe what other people say. And I heard a minister one time tell, a congregation of people that anything you ask for in the name of Jesus you'd receive. And that's what I believed because that man would have no reason to lie. And the man probably didn't lie, but he didn't know what the little girl heard. Because I went home after hearing that and I went to the mirror and I got all excited. And I found a place on my face that didn't have a zip. And I prayed in the name of Jesus make the rest of my face as clear as this spot is right here. And I was real specific so that God would know. And I wanted this man named Jesus to do this. When I woke up in the morning, there was a temple right where I prayed. So I knew Jesus didn't like me. See, I don't tell my child things like that. I tell her to have a relationship with a God. He's not her best buddy. God's not my best buddy. God's the master of my soul. God's the giver of my life and my sobriety. God's what gave us this fellowship. Best buddies fight and quarrel. Best buddies split. God and I don't. God and AA does not. And that's why I like my God being a God and not a best buddy. When I heard that and that prayer was not answered the way I thought that the man had told me it would be, I had to find a hiding place. I needed a hiding place real bad. I needed a place for the first time in my life where I could go and nobody could ever touch me. And we heated our home and we cooked our meals on an old wood, wood stove. 
and they are absolutely the most wonderful inventions ever known to mankind, in my opinion. And it was it's set in the kitchen, and that's where we we did everything in that kitchen, as far as cleaning cleaning ourselves and our home and cooking. And I found out that if I crawled behind that wood stove, nobody could crawl in with me. It was small enough that I fit all alone. And that's where I go every day. When I had to get away from everybody, I'd crawl behind the stove. And I'd stay behind the wood stove, and I'd pretend. And in my my little girl imagination, because I wasn't 12 years of age yet, in my little girl imagination, I'd pretend that I had blonde hair. And I'd pretend that my eyes were a different color. And I'd pretend that my skin was different. Because if all of that was okay, then inside of here, maybe it could be quiet. Inside of here, maybe the storms wouldn't rage. Inside my head, when I laid my head down at night to sleep, maybe the mind would turn off and the thoughts wouldn't go in and out, in and out. Maybe I wouldn't wake up with that fear if I could just pretend enough. When I was 12 years of age, some of my older brothers had became career men. They were armed robbers. And they chose my hiding place to hide their guns and money. You know, we had these real solid walls in our home. If you tap them with a knuckle, it creates a hole. And they tapped my wall. And in a hole near the floor, near the baseboard, they hid their gun and they hid their money. And they didn't want me to rat on them. They didn't want me to tell. And so they brought me a gift. It was the only gift I ever received from my family in my life, the one that lasted the longest. And it came in a brown paper sack. And my first drink of alcohol was whiskey. I don't know about social drinkers. I don't know about other people's first drinks. And I really don't care because that's the way it was for me. I opened that bottle of whiskey and being a young girl with a real healthy emotion and emotional and spiritual life, I turned that bottle up and I never will forget it because I drank it and it burned my throat and it burned my chest, it burned my fingertips. That whiskey burned me all the way down and it burned me all the way back up again. And it burned me all the way back down again. And I did not quit drinking. I did not quit drinking till every drop of that bottle was gone. I left my mother's house. We had wound up in Denver. And I left my mother's house. And I told her, I'm running away. And she said, I know. And I started living on the streets of Denver, Colorado, doing whatever I, I want to say, young lady, a little girl, doing whatever a little girl had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. I was 13 years of age and the state of Colorado stepped in and they said, girls don't live the lifestyle I was living. So they put me in a place called the Colorado State Reformatory for Girls. It was in Morrison, Colorado to punish me. They said I was incorrigible and I didn't know what they were calling me, but it really didn't sound very nice. <coughs> I found out what they were saying was that I was a young girl that no adult could handle. So they sent me to this place to punish me. When I went into the reform school, I was introduced for the first time in my life to a toothbrush, indoor toilet, <laughs> sheets on a bed, one person to a bed. I took to punishment real quick. <laughs> I found it very attractive. And so I stayed there a year because that's what I had to do. When I left the, the reform school, I went back home. I wasn't just barely past 13 years of age. And I've never entered my mother's house in my life without knocking on her door. I hadn't seen her, had not seen the lady. And I wanted my mother to say she was glad to see me. I wanted my mother to touch me. I wanted my mother to tell me I was going to stay there. She'd never liked me, never. I don't know why I thought anything was going to change. The earliest memory I have is being six years of age and trapping my entire family in the house and going out the front door and blocking it so they couldn't go out and going in the kitchen door, setting the kitchen on fire and going out the kitchen door and blocking it so they could not escape. Six years old. You know, I hated. I was so filled with something, and I don't know what it was. And I guess it really doesn't matter. So naturally, my mother had this fear, and I guess along with this fear came anger, and along with this anger came total lack of control and total lack of caring. Because I went into her home, I told her, I said, Mama, I can't stay here. 
and she said she knew it. I told her I was leaving, and she said she knew it. She didn't try to stop me, and so I left. And once again, I lived on the streets of Denver doing whatever at that time young female teenage alcoholic had to do to get that next drink. I lived that way for three years. The state of Colorado stepped in one more time, and they told me they did not recognize teenage alcoholism back in the middle 50s, early 50s. So they told me they were going to put me in the Colorado State Insane Asylum, and they had to come up with a diagnosis. But young teenage girls did not live the lifestyle I was living. And so they diagnosed me as schizophrenic, with paranoid reaction, with psychotic tendencies. And they sent me to Pueblo, Colorado, which is a cold town. And it's a state hospital. It's not a treatment center. There's nothing fancy about it. I didn't know until I had eight years of sobriety that schizophrenic meant I was two-faced, and I am. That paranoid meant you talk behind my back, and you do. And that psychotic means I'd rather kill you than myself, and I would. <laughs> to this day, if somebody in this room has to get drunk, I want it to be one of y'all. I don't have another sober enough. God gave me a gift 23 years ago, and if I destroy that gift, I don't have another chance. I truly believe that with all of my heart. I believe that more every day I'm sober than I did the first day I walked in this door. When they took me to the Colorado State Hospital and they gave me the diagnosis, they also knew how to treat me. They gave me Valium, 10 milligrams, four times a day. They gave me 25 milligrams of Librium, four times a day. They gave me 50 milligrams of Thorazine, four times a day. For 18 months, I didn't want to drink. <laughs> the obsession was removed. <laughs> they also signed me up to be a patient for electric shock treatment. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, very well-educated men laid me on a gurney, and they held me all the way down, and they'd put a great big row of gauze in my mouth, and they'd tilt my chin all the way back while his hand would reach to the electrical lever, the only part of my body I had any control at all was my eyelids. And this psychiatrist would look down at me at the age of 16 and ask me if I was frightened. And I'm totally powerless to answer the sucker anyway. And of course I was scared. Because I saw what happened to the other patients when they were administered electric shock treatment. I saw people medically resuscitated because back then they did not know how to regulate the dosage. And yeah, buddy, I was scared. When I left the Colorado State Hospital, I weighed 300 pounds. My teeth had rotted out of my head. My hair hung down past my rear. And... I could not get out into sunshine because of what Thorazine had done. I thought I was real cute. <laughs> because I took the Greyhound bus right back to Denver from Pueblo, went right back to my mother's home, and it was a replay. I knocked on her door, you know, and nothing, absolutely nothing. I said, Mom, I'm leaving. She said, yeah, I know. Mom, I'm never coming home again. And she said, yeah, I know. See, I, I didn't want her to let me know. I've done things all my life that I wanted somebody to stop me from because I could not stop myself. I didn't do things necessarily because I was evil. I didn't do things because I was a bad person. I did things because I couldn't stop me if I started them. And I think that's a direct result of alcoholism. When I left my mother's house that time, I traveled all over the United States on a Greyhound bus, hitchhiking, doing whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. I never planned on getting sober. Had no desire to ever get sober. I wanted to die by the age of 35 because that seemed real old at that time. And I wanted to die a drunk woman on the street because that's what I was. If people had asked me what my name was back then, in my heart I would say nothing. My name's nothing. I'm a nobody. I'm going nowhere. And that had something inside of me had died. Something inside of me had literally died. When I was real young and kids get ready to go trick-or-treating, I had looked in the mirror one time and I was in costume. And I looked in the mirror and I cried. One of my siblings asked me, what's the matter? And I said, I can still tell it's me looking back. Alcoholics know despair. Alcoholics know death, spiritual death. Something inside of this alcoholic had to die 
on a daily basis, spiritually, in order for me just to live physically. Not because I wanted it to, it just happened that way. I went back to Denver when I was 27. In every new town I went to, every new city I went to, I found a beer joint. I, I do not believe in high-bottom drugs. I do not believe in low-bottom drugs. I don't think where I've been is any different than anybody else in the world. I think maybe the path was a little different. But people like me that come in and people say, oh, they're a low-bottom drunk, you know, I find real offense with that. I truly do because um, alcoholism is not a respecter of persons. I've been taught that in AA. It has no respect for people. And if alcoholism has no respect for people, then it doesn't matter about this thing called high or low bottom. The difference, I think, if there's any difference at all between me and a high bottom alcoholic is that when people like myself come in, people expect us to get better because they don't think we can go any further down. <laughs> Move aside, buddy, and let us show you. <laughs> The other difference is that some people are protected by their education, their career, and their family. They can hide behind a job and a family and a wife or a husband and a children in a church. They can hide there and suffer as acutely as I ever suffered behind that wood stove. They can hurt as badly as I ever hurt in any beer joint. But society doesn't recognize it. Therefore, their recovery is a little bit harder. They come into the doors of AA, and my God, they bathe the night before they got here. They smell decent. And people just don't know sometimes how to treat them. They discount the wound of the spirit. And they take their heart, and they rip it, bust, they split their chest bone, and they say, oh, you're a high-bottom drunk. But see, you're not. You're not. They split it open, and they say, ooh, you're a low-bottom drunk. And you're not. What you are and what I am is we are alcoholics that suffer from a disease called alcoholism. Period. I stayed in this beer joint that I found in Denver that became my home. And on October the 18th of 1969, a man came in. Who, he came in on a regular basis every Saturday night. And he came in in a wheelchair. And he brought his wife with him every Saturday night. And he came up to me and he said, uh, Cricket, my wife and I have watched you for several months and we think you have a problem drinking. <laughs> no, buddy, I don't have a problem drinking. He said, Cricket, you do things you don't remember doing. And I thought, so what? And he said, you fight over stupid things. And I almost hit him, you know, <laughs> because I've never fought over anything stupid in my entire life. And even to this day, it's hard for me to realize that the fights I had weren't always caused by somebody else. Because <laughs> even in my heart and head today, I still I still want to think that I never started a fight. I guess I did, but not really. <laughs> Is, am I a master at rationalizing this one out? People would walk up to me sometimes in beer joint. Most of the time, people left me alone. Because just like we have our choice of drinks, we, you know, our drink preference, people have their fighting style that they like when they live on the street. But they'd say things that offended me. And one of them that I hated the most was for someone to tell me I was inebriated. I didn't understand what the word meant. If they called me a drunken pig, I could identify with that, and that didn't insult me. But for a female to tell me I was inebriated, she deserved to get punched out. And he told me, he said, Cricket, you go places with people you don't remember going. And he was right. And he said, we just think you have a problem with drinking. And I said, no, I don't think so. He said, do me a favor then. If you really don't think you have a problem, would you go with my wife and I to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tomorrow night? I said, sure, if that would make you feel better. He said, well, she's an Al-Anon. I thought, poor soul, what is that? You know, talk about an incurable disease. <laughs> and he called me the next morning. That evening, Harry told me, he said, when you wake up in the morning, don't take that first drink. I said, that's not a problem. And I woke up the next morning. I weighed 78 pounds, had no teeth left in my head. 
My hair still hung down past my rear end, and I did what I'd done for many, many mornings. I reached to the side of my bed, and I sat up and brought my bottle of whiskey up to my mouth. For some reason, that morning, I could not take that first drink of alcohol. Today, I know that was God. Today, I know that was the first communion that God and I had, because I just could not take that first drink of alcohol. I sat there, and, and about noon, the phone rang, and Harry said, Cricket, this is Harry. Have you had a drink? I said, no, buddy. Don't even want one. He said, are you going to a meeting? I said, I told you I'd be there. I'll be there. Because, see, Harry challenged me. He made it. I had to try this AA because I could truthfully tell people church had failed. God had failed. Jesus had failed. Psychiatry had failed. So I could drink myself to death, and it wasn't going to be my fault. But Harry introduced something else. And so I had to come into AA and let it fail like everything else, and then maybe everybody would leave me alone. I was 28 and getting close to 35. My days were numbered. And he asked me if I needed a ride to their meeting. I said, boy, I don't need anything from you. I told you if I'd be at your meeting, I'll be there, okay? And he said, okay. I'd never driven a car. I don't have a DWI. Maybe I'm not alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> I called a yellow cab to take me to this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. The anonymous part started bothering me. That word anonymous sounded real secretive. I'm a crop follower's kid. I never knew racial prejudice until I became an adult, sober person, and moved to Fort Worth, Texas. Never knew it existed. But I knew about the KKK. And anonymous sounded kind of close. <laughs> and I thought, man, I'm going into that meeting. Then people are going to have those hoods and them sheets, and they're going, I don't know what they're going to do. I know what those other sheets look like, and I, are they going to have AA on the front? What are they going to do? And I was real kind of apprehensive. I had the taxi driver let me out about a block away from that AA group. And once he drove off and couldn't see where I was going, I walked into my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous on October the 19th of 1969. I didn't see one thing I wanted. I walked in. There weren't very many females back then, and the few there were had red hair. And I didn't like red-headed women. And it was a small place. And I walked in, and this red-headed woman stood up, and she came. She drooled, you know. And she came running at me, and she said, Hi, my name's Sharon. Are you an Alki? Nobody would ever been that excited to see me. I knew something was wrong with her. And I knocked her on the way in. <laughs> About ten minutes later, the men came up to me and said, Sharon, have you told Cricket that we care? And she said, Not yet. <laughs> they hadn't taught her about the open-minded part of this program yet. And I sat there during their meetings. I stayed sober. I didn't take a drink because I knew AA had to kick me out. They had to be the ones responsible for me going back drinking. They had to fail. They had to fail so that I could tell people I tried it. It didn't work. It's their fault, not mine. I sat there, and about my third day of continuous sobriety, I went into horrible DTs. Back then, they didn't do it the way they did now. They didn't dial a number for a treatment center. They gave me orange juice and honey. They uh, stayed with me for 72 hours, and they walked me through the DTs. They wor worked with me through the convulsions, and they let me stay. And I'm still waiting, because, see, I hear their things that they say in AA. They say it's the first drink that gets you drunk, okay? And the little girl still believes everything she's told. But I'm smart. And I'm thinking, first drink, huh? I'll never have to get drunk again, and I can still drink. Because I'm going to go to my beer joint. I'm going to order two drinks. <laughs> I'm going to throw the first one away. <laughs> that made sense to me back then, my friend. I really thought that would work. AA didn't know what it was talking about. Okay? I sit on the very back row day after day. And they passed these little wicker baskets when I was new. They used to say, if you've got it, put it in. If you need it, take it out. I stayed there about two weeks. They quit saying that. <laughs> what are you going to take on the back row if they say that? You're going to leave the change. I did. They used to say, take what you can use now, what, come back, get what you, and come back and get the rest later. I did that. I took their adding machine, their typewriter. Came back to break in their coke box. 
they, this Sharon, you know, she gets, she's getting healthier. So she reads me these questions to determine whether or not I'm alcoholic. And one of them said in there, she's reading this stuff to me, has, a, has alcohol ever affected your job? I never worked a legal job. It enhanced my career. And she came to this one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe I met him before. <laughs> Was that a testimony, Bob? <laughs> it did enhance my career. It came to this question, has alcohol ever affected your sex life? And I look at Sharon, okay, I've got long-term sobriety. I've got about four weeks. And I'm looking around the room, and back then, some of them men are starting to look real good. And I said, lady, you write out to the side of that no, because I don't want these men to think that I'm not able to do what I do best, and write my phone number. That's how sick I was. I continued to do what I had to do. You know, if you've got a problem and you want to talk about it, let the discussion table is the time to talk about it. If you don't want to talk about it, change the topic. I can tell you how I changed the topic of discussion meetings for six months of continuous sobriety. I'd sit at the end. I'd let everybody get their coffee and set it on the table. And when they brought up something I didn't want to talk about, which was any subject they could come up with, I'd stand up and put both hands under the end of the table and raise it up. And all the coffee cups would go that way. People would be jumping backwards, and I'd say, I don't like the topic today. <laughs> and see, once again, they didn't stop me. I stayed sober six months, was approached by the Denver uh, Police Department and told I had to leave Denver. Right before that happened, a group of men in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous came to me as I came into a meeting. It was getting to be fun. I'm still waiting for him to kick me out, but I could find things to entertain myself in the fellowship. They told me that they weren't going to put up with my stuff anymore. And see, I felt real relieved, because I knew at that point, with six months, they were kicking me out, and I could go back to my beer joint. I still had time before I died. And they came up to me, and they said, Cricket, we're not doing it. There's other people in this room just as important as you are. I don't see any. And they said, you can't turn the coffee tables over anymore. You can't steal the money. You can't break into our coke machine. You can't fight people. You can't panhandle. You can't wait until an Al-Anon walks in the room and then walk up and speak to her husband. You never speak to him when she's not around. <laughs> right? And they told me they weren't going to put up with my stuff. And they said, Cricket, we can't kick you out. And I just kind of stopped breathing for a second. And they said, we'd like to. <laughs> but our traditions will not allow us to kick you out of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because you suffer from alcoholism and you have a desire to stop drinking. And I thought, oh, you mean I've got to stay sober. I've got to find something bad enough to make them not want to obey whatever that thing is. And so I set out on a course. They assigned two men to walk me into every AA meeting. Sit beside me during the meeting and walk me out after the Lord's Prayer. And that was okay, because by that time I was told I had to leave Denver. The police told me where I was going. And I said, where? And they said, you're moving to Fort Worth, Texas. And I thought, God. And I told them, I said, boy, do you understand I never went to Texas drunk? And sober, you're making me move there? Do you know what Texas is like? And they said, yes, Cricket, and sober you're moving there because you've never been there before. Nobody knows you. You don't have a record of it. Okay, I'll go on three conditions. I want a high school diploma. I want a case of the softest toilet paper made because I'd heard that Texans use coin cops. <laughs> I believed it. I believed it. When we were children, we used magazine pages and newspapers. And, man, that's rough, but corn cobs, I, I've got a vivid imagination. And I want a car with a driver's license. They did every, it took me one week, five days, to have a car with a driver's license, a high school diploma, and a case of stock toilet paper. And they send me to Fort Worth, Texas. I've got six months of continuous sobriety. I do everything I'm told to do. And this car had um, three pedals. And I had two legs. <laughs> I stayed confused from Denver to Fort Worth. And I did something to that car that made it never go again once I got to Fort Worth. 
They make cars that say D for drive, R for reverse, P for park. That's what I have now, and it's wonderful. I get into Fort Worth. I've done something to this car, and I call AA. I did exactly what they told me to do. And a man answered the telephone, and he said, Hi, Southwest Group Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Dave. I said, So what? He said, Can I help you? I said, I need directions. He said, Well, where are you? I said, Buddy, all I want from you is directions. And I hitchhiked from the east side of Fort Worth to the far southwest side of Fort Worth to my first AA meeting in Texas. And I walked in the door, and there was a red-headed woman. (laughs) And her name was Nadine. And she came running down that aisle, and she said, Hi, darling. And I knocked her on her ear in. (laughs) I sit in the closed discussion meetings, and I hear a lot of male alcoholics talk about Al-Anons. And I'm still trying to figure out, what's an Al-Anon? What's an Al-Anon? And I hear them say, you know, they're sicker than we are. I've never heard an Al-Anon tell me that. I've never seen a study done to prove that, but that's what I heard. And I believed that, and I felt so sorry for these poor alcoholic men. And I went to Harris Hospital, and I asked those, the man up there at Harris Hospital, I said, Sir, would you please tell me where your intensive care unit is? He said, Lady, it's right behind that sign there. I said, Thank you very much. And I sat down. When he left, I stole the sign. And I took it to Southwest Group. And I hung it on the al room door. <laughs> I wanted them to know how sick they were, okay? And I don't know about anybody else, but there's always a late AA member and a late al They met behind our meeting room, so they had to walk through our meeting room. And they're walking through, and their door's open. Nobody says anything. The last one at 8 o'clock, she shuts the door, smiles at us. And I'm sitting there, and here comes the late Al-Anon. She gets up to the door, kind of bouncy. And she sees that sign, and she just stops for a second, and the back of her ears turn real red. <laughs> she walks in the Al-Anon room door, and it goes, bam. About three seconds later, the Al-Anon walks out. And I don't know how many of y'all have ever met a Al- the Al-Anon. This one, when she came out, these veins were sticking out. Her nostrils were flared. And her shoulders were up like this. And she who hung that sign? And I looked at her, and I very graciously smiled and said, I did. And she said, oh, cricket, it's okay. <laughs> There's nothing okay about that behavior. There's really nothing okay about that behavior. It took me three months in Fort Worth, and I had escorts in and out the meetings. Something about stealing, something about fighting, disruptive behavior, and something about the tradition. I stayed sober eight years at that group. Did not take a drink of alcohol. Somebody got a resentment. They torched the group. My phone rang. Where were you this afternoon? Why? Well, you know, somebody burned the group down. I said, go over and look real close. If you don't find my name written in the ashes, then you know I didn't do it. When the group had to move, the personality of the group changed. I haven't taken a drink in eight years. There are other groups in Fort Worth. There's one called the Harbor. And I was told from the day I got to Fort Worth, don't ever go to Harbor Group. You'll never fit in because those people are smarter than you are. Those people dress better than you do. Those people all have college education. They have more money than you, and they're on a different social strata than you've ever been on in your life. And so I wouldn't ever go to Harbor. But once that group burned down, I had to because AA hasn't kicked me out yet. I'm sober eight years. And I walk in the Harbor Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this tall lady with red hair, came walking across the coffee room, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, God, I don't want to hit her. I don't want to hit her. I will, but I don't want to. She's in her 60s. I'll do it if it's necessary. And she walked up to me, and she said, Cricket, my name's Betty G, and I'm going to be your sponsor. I said, wait. Hey, lady. I've been sober eight years. She said, oh, yes, I know that, and I'm not taking anything away from that. But that's the only thing you've done right since you got sober. I said, I don't need a sponsor. 
And she said, I know that too, but I'll, I'm going to be your sponsor. And I said, and you've got red hair. And she said, I know that too. And she said, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you, Cricket. Let's go back in here in this little office, and we'll talk about it. And if I believe you understand the program of recovery from alcoholism, I will walk out of here and leave you alone. She said, you have stayed sober eight years on the fellowship. And there's a big difference between the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of recovery. We went in that little room, and Betty G handed me the big book of AA, and she said, here, Darling, you read me the first portion of chapter 5. I said, okay. And I started reading to her. Rarely have we seen a person fail who's thoroughly followed our path. So on and on and on. And Betty G. reaches over to me and she takes the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous out of my hand and she said, darling, you can't read it. I said, wait a minute, lady. Just read you the first portion of chapter 5. She said, no, it wasn't opened on chapter 5. You've heard it at every meeting. You've got it memorized. And I said, what are you going to do with that information, lady? She said, I'm taking you to Texas Christian University. You just told me I'm an idiot. Now I get to go to the university? <laughs> I like this deal. This woman stood about this high. She had red hair. She was a judge's daughter. She'd gone through eight years of college and graduated cum laude something. I don't know, big time stuff with education. She took me to TCU. And she introduced me to a friend of hers, and she says, I want you to teach cricket to read. And this real old lady, I never will forget her, her name was Ruth. She was in her late 70s. She said, cricket is not hard. You learn 26 things, and most of those things only make one or two sounds. And all I was going to teach you to do is combine them. And Betty was telling me at the same time, you learn the steps. I'll teach you the tradition, I'll teach you the concept, and we'll combine it. And so I go to this class every day, day after day after day. I was sitting there one day, and it took a long time. It didn't happen overnight. One of the biggest thrills in my sobriety was when she held up three things, and it was BAT. And I looked at that, and I went, that? You cannot believe the excitement that I felt. The excitement that my heart had and my head had. I knew what those letters were. I knew how they joined hands. And I knew what a bat looked like. I even had a neighbor that classified. You know? There was all kinds of bats. And I knew that. But you know the amazing thing? What the neatest gift of learning to read in sobriety was? I no longer had to believe what you said about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. That recovery could be mine. When it talks in there about God, I could find a God. Because that could be my book now. You didn't have to be my book. You didn't have to be the only messenger I had. And Betty took me down to that group that would never accept me. They made me totally change the way I dressed. They bought me teeth. They taught me to drive a car. I went back and took another GED and I passed. On my own, I went and got a Texas driver's license, and I passed on my own. Nobody gave me that because nobody was trying to get rid of me. They taught me vocabulary. They taught me spelling. They taught me mathematics, along with sobriety. My sponsor was not one who, of those who believe a sponsor never tells you what to do. He said, if I can't tell you what to do, get another sponsor. If you know the answer to the question, don't ask the question. If I tell you your address is too pink, dye it. If I tell you your hair is too short, let it grow. And I did. Because, see, I'm not saying my sponsor was always right. But I know my sponsor always loved me. She may not have always had the right decision or the right answer, but she always had the right motive. And something inside a cricket was beginning to change. I had about 12 years of continuous sobriety. And I went before that God. And I said, Dear God, sir, my name's Cricket. And many, many years ago, I asked you to help me never feel again. And I don't feel anything, sir. When they hold my hands after those AA meetings, as soon as possible, I go up and I wash it off. And when they try to hug me, I have to go and shower. I can't stand it. But if there's any way, would you help me feel again, sir? 
See, Betty had began me on a journey that started with step one of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she worked me all the way through up to step ten. And as she did that, inside here, something was happening that was unbelievable. And I was able to give back to my sponsor. She became very ill. And I'd go over and I'd do her meals. I went over one day because I used to steal old age pension checks out of the mail. I didn't keep a list of who I sold them from, so you can't make direct amends. But she told me I could make amends by calling Bingo for the Senior Citizens of Alcoholics Anonymous on Saturday night for three hours, free. I said, for how long, Betty? She said, seven years. <laughs> she believed in making amends, and I did it for seven years. I went over, you know, I, I, I do things for my sponsor. Because my mother gave me physical life. But Betty G., because of her sobriety and her recovery, breathed into me a spiritual life. This one evening I went over and I, I took her some yellow tulips and a lavender gown and I fixed her supper and I took her upstairs and tucked her in bed. She's in her late 70s and she's got arteriosclerosis. And I looked down at her and said, well, I'm going to go call Bingo. And she said, I know, darling. And she looked up at me and the tear came out of her eye and it came out the corner and it went down these little creases she had in her face. You know, these highways of wisdom that God had etched in the skin of this marvelous person. And I stuck my finger down and I tried to trace that tear back to where it came from. But see, I couldn't because her tears for me came from all the way down here. That's what sponsors do. We ask them to love us, pray for us, walk with us, talk to us, help us, help us. Don't tell us what to do. You know, talk about schizophrenia. <laughs> she looked at me and she, for the millionth time she said, Cricket, darling, you know I love you. For the first time, I looked down at her and I touched that skin with my fingertips. And I said to her, Betty G, I love you too. I love you too. See, God had been able to steal some of the storms. God had been able to begin the healing of peace inside of me. I went and I called Bingo. The next morning I went back to do my sponsor's breakfast. I never knocked on my sponsor's home. I could write on her checking account. I could I could cash in her CDs. I had total control of everything I wanted to do. Never took a dime. Never took a dime. But I went in and I yelled, Betty. And Betty never said yes to me. And she never shrugged her shoulders. So I said, I'm in here, Cricket. And I'd go to where Betty was. And I'd be excited because I was going to learn something new today. Something new today. And I'd, well, I looked for her and I found her upstairs. And my sponsor died. And I remember kneeling down beside her and wrapping my arms around her. Something I couldn't do when she was alive. And saying, oh, Betty, what do I do now? How, the world can't be without you. They tell me nobody's indispensable. And I'm not going to argue with learned people. But you know, there are some people that are irreplaceable. My sponsor was irreplaceable, my friend. The people at my first AA group gave me a beginning. The people at my second AA group allowed me to continue that beginning. The people at my home group today brought me to life through the steps, the traditions, and service work. I can read almost any book you give to me. I can spell a whole lot of words. I can do any kind of math, basic math. I'm not talking algebra and that kind of stuff. You know, I can dress decently where you don't have to be ashamed of me. My God is so good that I sponsor an Al-Anon. <laughs> <laughs> and two red-headed women. <laughs> but you want to know something else? I got a friend named Mona. And see, Mona's my best friend. And Mona likes me. She'll walk in an alley with me. She doesn't want me to be hungry. She doesn't want me to be lonely. You know, I have a best friend. 
and I have a daughter. I've got a 15-year-old daughter. A few years back, somebody told me she'd come down with an incurable disease called puberty. <laughs> Being a healthy member of Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought about that, and I thought, what the hell am I going to do with this? <laughs> I don't know. And I went to her, and I said, Carrie, when you get off this puberty, will you tell me? And she said, well, yeah, Mama, why? I said, because when you do, I'm going to go into menopause. <laughs> I'm going to pay you back for this stuff. (laughs) She's 15 years old. She's in junior police. She goes, she trains with the FBI. My kid, right? If they ever do a background check on her mother, (laughs) something else. It is not unusual to see a squad car outside my front door. You know what's unusual about life on a daily basis? It's mine. I get to wake up every morning. I get to try to the best of my ability to serve a God that I understand. I get to come from Fort Worth, Texas to Kearney, Nebraska and hug friends and sit across from the table and eat a meal with her. I get to add new friends. You know, Brenda and Steve, they took me through Omaha. I'd been on Omaha before and I said, I used to live here. And we were driving through the old part of town, and I told Brenda, down there, and I don't remember what street corner it was, but she knew what I was talking about. That was my home corner. And she said, you really did. <laughs> yes, ma'am, never sober, but I was here. What's neat is that when I leave here right now and go over there and sit down, some of you are going to want to see me again, and some of you aren't. But... The blessing in all of that is that if there's any of you that are hungry, I will feed you. If there's any of you that are naked, I will clothe you. And if there's a thrown up you can drunk, I will get on my knees and clean you up. But I'm not going to tell you I love you all. I don't. I don't know how. Because see, to me, love's an action, not just a word. I know I love some of you. Those are the people I can play with. Those are the people that I can be cricket with. I'm not whole yet, but I'm real close to getting better and better and better. I need you more today than I did when I first walked in the store for my sobriety, for my sanity, for my child who's never known the hand of an abuser. For all of that, I thank you to every one of you. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.